How are y'all? Excellent. Well, uh, my name is Wayne, uh, Wayne Randolph. I am one of your teachers here for the teaching team. I'm also one of your pastors. And we are three weeks into a new series on Shalom and the restoration of Shalom. And today, uh, like all days, I've got some disclaimers. And uh, the disclaimer is this. Oh, my goodness. I am trying to go through uh, an entire biblical meta narrative, uh, like an overarching uh, narrative, uh, mostly through the Old Testament. I'm going to try to do that in whatever time's allotted. It takes about five to six weeks when I was a classroom teacher. So, <laughs> But I mean, I had homework and papers and, you know, uh, put your seatbelts on. I don't know. Uh, let's get into this. So today, uh, today's title is The Divine Choose Your Own Adventure. Do you guys remember those books at all? Anybody old enough, young enough? Remember the Choose Your Own Adventure books? Awesome. I wish life was like that, that if uh, when I met with a problem or dilemma, I can just skip ahead to page 62 and see if my story is going to end or not. There's not enough of you that read those books, huh? You don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Never mind. Let's just pray. All right. <laughs> Let's pray. Creator God, author of Shalom, definer of good and evil. author, creator, sustainer of life and love. Why don't we only pause a couple times out of the day at most to acknowledge you? I'm sorry. God, I believe that there is a story that has been told since the beginning of time. I believe it's told in the stars, it's told in surrounding nature, and it's been told by people here. I pray today that that story would find its way to the good soil of our hearts, that it would take root, that we would be inspired, that we would tap into your creativity, your energy, your goodness. Father, I'm thankful for the very breath that we get to participate in life with you in every single moment. Keep us in tune. Keep us in harmony with you and with one another. Do this through the press and through the power of your spirit. Amen. Woo, y'all ready? Bang. All right. And if I was a really, you know, more prepared teacher, and I should, didn't tell you how much I taught all the time, but if I was a more prepared teacher, I would have notes for you too, huh? But uh, hopefully you got a pen and paper of your own, and here we go. Um, so uh, today, um, I want to make sure I highlight another book. I know last week I highlighted um, Richard Rohr's Universal Christ. Uh, today's book that I'd like to highlight is a book known as Jesus Wants to Save Christians, 
which is a fantastically ornery title. Um, the subtitle is uh, A Manifesto for a Church in Exile. And this is written by uh, Rob Bell, and I'm blanking on the other dude's name, but it's up there, right? Don Golden. Thank you, images. So um, this particular book, uh, this actually, I, I think it is fantastic. I would highly recommend this to any of you, especially those of you that maybe want to, um, whether it's reclaim or gain some decent, uh, like, biblical literacy. And what I mean by biblical literacy is not uh, about inerrancy so that you can argue with people over, like, uh, like the letters and, and punctuation, but biblical literacy in terms of the narrative, right? We've, we've mentioned so many times that this, this thing that we are perpetuating here is, is, comes from an oral tradition, right? And so story and narrative is quite important. And this particular book really does well at helping specifically Christians here in, in the West um, kind of realign back to this uh, narrative, which is the narrative that we're going to be exploring today. Uh, and it's a narrative that uh, Moses put before the Israelites at Mount Sinai. But I'm getting a little ahead of myself. So, quick recap. We are exploring this idea of shalom. And I presented to you two weeks ago shalom as a system uh, and reminded you or, or taught you for the first time that within the system of shalom, that there are four quadrants, there are four relational aspects of shalom. Uh, just another quick note to ourselves, um, what's so nice, uh, among other things, of exploring the quadrants of shalom is that one of the things it does naturally is that it combats our individualistic thinking and how we bring that into our relationship with God, right? And the, the idea there, the, the phrase that I threw out back uh, on that day was this uh, phrase that had been said a lot, maybe even by us, but it's all about a, a personal relationship with Jesus. And sure, that's great, but we also have these other four quadrants, right? We also have these other areas that are being restored, right? We also have an entire earth, which we saw last week, right? It's that the entire thing is made through Christ. So the entire thing is being restored. We see that in the system of Shalom, that it is meant to be a flourishing and abundant system, Flourishing an abundant relationship, not lacking anything between us and each other, between us and God, between us and the earth, and between us and ourselves, right? It's a holistic view of what it looks like to be, have transformation. Last week, we spent some time, sorry if that was really loud, gosh. Last week, so we spent some time uh, just looking at all the texts Oh, and I guess I shouldn't say, oh, it wasn't an exhaustive list. We looked at a lot of texts last week that point to the idea that the Christ has been moving since the beginning, that all things were made through the Christ. Nothing came into existence without being made through the Christ. We explored some of the, and hopefully you guys kind of did this on your own, but we explored some of the ramifications of that. If Christ is in everything, if everything it has the, the blueprint, then what does that mean about the restoration process? What does that mean for your eschatology, the study of end times? Some of us come in here with some baggage. Whew. Some, of us, <laughs> some of us come in here with some rapture, tribulation, some weird left behind kind of theology. And, and in that type of theology, there's an escapism. There, there, there's a leaving this place kind of thing that happens. But, but if the Christ is in all, 
And I'm, I'm not saying that. The text says it. Then what does that mean for the divine to restore all? Does God really look at it, say it's good, the Christ is used to make it all, but then he's like, eh, y'all ate some fruit, and you're going to be kicked out of here forever. It's all going to go to hell in a handbasket. just doesn't compute. It doesn't line up with the meta-narrative, with the narratives that are being laid out for us since the beginning of time. Well, one of the verses that I highlighted for us was in Revelation, speaking of uh, interesting book and end times. <laughs> and I presented this, uh, this claim here from God in Revelation 21. I am making the whole of creation new. It will come true. It is already done. I am the alpha and the omega, both the beginning and the end. Last Sunday and the Sunday before is an idealist's dream. And I've, I have... I have professed before, confessed be before to you guys, I am an idealist. This is, this is the hope that I have is in this system of shalom. This is the hope that I have that someday things are going to be made good. Why? Because they're inherently good. It's all good. But what do we do with crap going on in our world today? What do we do? <laughs> yeah, what do we do? I didn't check out the slide to see if the graphic is going to show up well. Let's see, Mr. Brian. Looks better there than it does on my computer. What do we do with this? How did we get here? How did we get here where our country in 2023, last year, guys, 857.9 billion dollars. I'm so math illiterate. I have no I know that's massive. I know it's a lot of money. I have no clue how to comprehend. That's our defense budget, friends. The USA 857.9 billion China the second most at 230 billion. Russia, 84 billion. India, 72.6 billion. Saudi Arabia, 69 billion. I did tell you I'm not a math whiz, but I can add. And if you add up all the other countries on this list, they don't even get close to our $857.9 billion. This is a multi trillion dollar endeavor. For three years in a row, the CDC lists firearms as the number one cause of death among children in the U.S. Poverty is America's fourth leading risk factor for death behind only heart disease, cancer, and smoking. A single year of poverty defined relatively in the study as having less than 50% of the U.S. median household income is associated with 183,000 American deaths per year. Poverty. $857.9 billion in defense. 
I don't have the statistic uh, in front of me because I didn't want to get lost in that. I, I had three slides of statistics. Go figure, teacher. I think we spent $23, billion for education. I don't think that, that might be way too high. I'll just say this. It baffles me. If shalom is the design, if shalom is the intention, if shalom is the system that was presented to us, that was gifted to us, how in the world do we, as a species, collectively, go from this shalom where everything has an opportunity to flourish to a system of empire where only a few win at the expense of others? Sometimes I wish I wasn't a pastor and I was a comedian because then I can drop more F-bombs. <laughs> but we both would speak truth, wouldn't we? So how did we get here? Okay, the biblical authors, they, they use a phrase. Um, some of you might even remember a book and a, and a movie with a handsome dude, Mr. James Dean, called uh, East of Eden. Uh, but the biblical authors will use a phrase to talk about how far we continue to move from the original plan. The biblical authors talk about us going east of Eden. And if you guys remember the story from Genesis, you get the first family. And what happens? What's the first, like, sin? It's not even like someone looked at each other wrong or, like, rolled their eyes at each other. A brother kills another brother. Right? We go from here's, here's all this goodness, here's the system, to yeah, but. And we start doing things our own way. We go to killing uh, our brothers. Cain kills Abel. He goes out, and it says he builds a city. One of his offsprings, uh, an, another man, maybe you've heard of Lamech, Lamech. And he says if, if, Cain's, if Cain's vengeance is sevenfold, then Mine, or is it sixfold? What is it? Sevenfold? Ooh, what's the band? Avenge sevenfold? Nobody? My kids are all upstairs. Anyways, yeah, you, I mean, basically, you get this, you get humanity moving from this beautiful thing in, in the garden, and it just, those first few chapters, it just is like this spiral, right? The first thing is a murder. After that, there's this other guy who, who's like, man, if this guy is infamous, I'm even more infamous for killing. I'll, I'll, I'll come at you even harder. It's just this like continuous destruction, so much so that we get to Genesis 6. This is all really, really, really ancient history, by the way. You guys know this, right? This is super ancient history. Like even when the Israelites are writing down the first part of Genesis, that's ancient history for them. So this is way out there. But what's happening in that, by the sixth chapter of Genesis, it says, and it uses some really big language, like not big language, but it uses some very absolute type language. God looked and saw that every thought, every deed, all man, everything was wicked, except for one person left, this dude named Noah, right? So everything in them is wicked. God destroys it, has some weird talk about the Nephilim and giants, and there's weird talk there too, but I got to keep on moving. They get beyond that. Uh, and then you get the story with Abraham. And finally, like, we, the narrative kind of like slows down and goes into one, one family. But where I really want to pick up today is the origin story for the Israelites. And the origin story, the beginning for the Israelites, is the book of Exodus. It's the story of the Exodus. 
I don't have a whole lot of time to go through this. I'm assuming you've seen the Disney movie. You've been around uh, the, the, the Christian culture long enough. You've been around, like you've heard the story long enough. I don't have to go into all the details, but I am going to highlight some of those details. In Egypt, in Egypt, Israel finds itself, the, the, this people, this, this nation group, they find themselves as slaves. They are in a stratified empire, right? They are, I mean, the pyramid is perfect for Egypt as well. You've got one dude at top, Pharaoh, the king god. He's deified. He is God. Whatever he says goes. Everybody else is trying to make that dude happy. And we all know stuff goes downhill, right? And so does that stratification. It gets larger and larger. And so the largest portion of the people in the bottom who's carrying the most weight, they're also carrying, they're getting the most flack. They have the most burden, right? They're the ones that aren't actually participating in the, the flourishing, in the abundance. It's in this, in this time that, that they're, they're, uh, they're making bricks. They're having to do all this stuff. And you can imagine a scenario. Maybe you can. You can imagine a scenario with, with a dad coming home one day and, you know, hit one of his kids asking him, like, man, like, you look, you look extra, like, just sweaty today, dad. Like, you look like you actually extra work today. What's going on? Oh, well, they increased how many bricks we have to make. Well, dad, I mean, you can't even make that many. You can't even make your own quarter. Why, why, like, why did you say anything? Well, no, you know, I can't say anything or else I'm, I'm going to catch it from, from my boss. I'm, I'm gonna, he's going to take it out on me. He's going to beat me. But, but then, like, think about that for a second, right? Then, like, so, but what about his boss? That guy is only participating in a system in which case all the bosses are constantly beating the people down below him. That guy who's beating, beating the dad who's making the bricks, he's just participating in a system of empire. Now, it's not to say that he's, you know, doesn't have blood on his hands, but he's participating in this system. And if he doesn't do it, then his boss above him is going to kick his butt all the way up, so much so that we get this word, and, and it, um, thank you for reminding us that remember is such the word from the Old Testament, because what, what we get here is we get the Israelites, they cry out, and the word in Hebrew is sa'ak, and sa'ak is a cry that demands a response. It's a cry that demands a response, and God is going to show up. God is the God who answers the cry of the oppressed. And he will constantly ask them to remember this, to remember this. It's going to go bad for him. So God answers their call. You guys know all the, they duke it out with Pharaoh, right? You got some blood and some locusts and some boils. They get out into the wilderness Wilderness becomes, by the way, just a side, quick side note for the narrative of all of Scripture. Wilderness is the place where you interact with God, by the way. You always look where it's going on. It's always out in the wilderness. The city is where you go down and get down and you have like your, your, your struggle with the rest of the people. But it's in the wilderness that you meet with God. The people of Israel go out to, 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 uh, to the wilderness. They learn how to sh shed their slave mentality. They learn how to be obedient to God. We're going to follow this pillar. Wherever it goes, we got to go because if we want to get food, if we want to live, we got to follow this thing. Eventually, they get to another location, another very important location in the narrative of Israel, and it's Mount Sinai. Gosh, we could spend, again, just months here. But for today's purposes, Mount Sinai, let me get my slide up, make sure I don't hit 
This is where, as hopefully, again, y'all know, this is where God makes his covenant with his people. This is where we get the Ten Commandments. And even as God is recalibrating, even as God is trying to, to, to create a new system in them, for the intentions, by the way, this new system is so that they can be a nation of priests, a nation of priests that go out and bless the other nations, that go out and bless everywhere they go, not just those who are made in the image of their God, because their story is that all are made in the image of God. Just a quick side note there, too. Uh, the, the Babylonian myth story, that there's only one group that's, that's made in the image of God, and everybody else is made to serve those that are made in the image of God. How convenient. But the, the Israelites were meant to be a people, a nation of priests that would go out and bless. This is a shared power, not one singular power at the top, but a shared power. This is the formation and the reestablishment of shalom. This is the design. This is the desire. But we know that even while Moses is up on the mountain getting these tablets, the people go right back into their ways. They go right back. And, and I have to believe it as neural pathways. You guys know, right? You want to do the good things. That means it's right around January. We, we want to do the good things this year. We're going to try to do like good, uh, what are those things called? Resolutions, thank you. And like within weeks, you're like, man, I'm just right back doing my old thing. Yeah, old laws written in our bodies, old neural pathways. Path of least resistance, right? They go right back into it. But they made a covenant. <laughs> and so the history of Israel moves a little bit forward. Uh, I do want you to understand this, that the Israelites see this covenant as a wedding ceremony. This is like a wedding. This is a, this is a bride and a husband. Let me get to the next. All right. From Mount Sinai, uh, we're going we're gonna to go fast some years. We're going to move right into Jerusalem, and we're going to get to the third king. How many of you, can you just raise your hands for me real quick if you've heard of King Solomon? More often than not, there are two things that we hear, especially if you've grown up in this faith tradition, in this strange tribe of ours. Um, there's usually two things that we hear about Solomon. Anybody want to throw one out? Wise. Wise. Oh, that's the best one to start with, too. Wise Solomon. We're going to start with wise Solomon. What's the other one? Yeah, so wisdom, and then he, what does he build? He, he builds the temple, right? He builds the temple to God. Um, we have the story about his wisdom, about, you know, two ladies, and they come to him and, like, whose baby's whose? And I'm not going to, like, make that all silly because that's not a silly story. Sorry. Um, but we know a lot of those stories, right? I want to briefly touch on uh, something, on some, some exploits of our friend King Solomon. And I have a disclaimer that I know I've shared before. And I'd like to share it again. I hate King Solomon. I despise this character. Being a Bible teacher, I had so much fun just trashing this dude. This lesson right here that I'm about to give you in a few minutes, uh, we would spend a week just trashing him. And then I um, 
was introduced to the wisdom of the Enneagram. And I found out that uh, I am very proficient in the Enneagram Type 7 space. And do you know who else is probably just incredibly proficient and the, the poster child for Enneagram Type 7? It's Solomon. I hate me. Ugh. Okay, so uh, Solomon, you guys, third, third king, right? Saul, David, Solomon, third king. If we just switch to the next slide and we'll come back to this again. Okay. Um, back in that little scene when the Israelites were in the desert for that long time that we covered in 32 seconds, um, one of the things that Moses is doing there constantly out there in the wilderness is um, teaching the people how to be a nation of priests. It's constantly teaching. And in doing so, he has to often remind them, hey, I know we're asking you to do it this way, but everybody else around us is doing this, and that's really hard, right? We want to do those things. So when that day comes that when you say we want a king like everybody else, this is Moses anticipating when Israel becomes a nation. When that day comes that you say you want a king just like all the other kings around you, let me remind you of some things. Let's talk about a little bit about this because we don't do empire. We're not empire people. So um, this is from uh, Deuteronomy chapter 17, by the way, for the sake of a quick slide and all that too. I just re wrote it real fast for you. Deuteronomy 17 has the requirements for a king according to Moses. Um, for number one, must be an Israelite. Number two, must not acquire many horses. Specifically, the people are warned not to go back to Egypt. Why would you go back there? I already sa I saved you from that place. Specifically, don't go back to Egypt to get these horses, but you can't have a lot of them. Number three, must not take many wives. By the way, for someone like a type seven who is really good at equivocating and rationalizing, when you don't give us like, like actual boundaries and you just say can't have many, We're going we're to see in a second. I think many of you already know. Uh, must not accumulate, accumulate large amounts of gold and silver. Doesn't sound like the king probably that they're wanting. Uh, and lastly, he must write down a copy of the Torah and meditate on it daily. Uh, specifically, it says he, he's to keep it on his heart and meditate on it daily. Let's hit that next slide, Mr. Brian Flores. So... Uh, there is one thing that Solomon did right, and it's only by way of DNA. It's not even a choice that he had. But he was an Israelite. Good job. But let's look at this really quick. King Solomon, third king of Israel, wise King Solomon. 4,000 stalls for horses and chariots and 12,000 horses. When we talk about stalls for horses and chariots, and again, if you go into and look, this is in First Chronicles, by the way. If you go in and look at this section, it's actually talking about these different uh, chariot houses. These are what you have if you have an empire and you want to protect your territory and your borders. Well, then you have fortresses and little armories all around, right? I don't have it written there, but in Chronicles, we learn 
that not only did Solomon get so many horses and chariots, which are the tanks of his day. I hope you guys understand that. Not only did he get so many, he also specifically went to Egypt to get their war horses because they were renowned. And not only did my man go and buy them there, but he also sold them to all the other kings and empires in the land around him. So now he's an arms dealer. Shalom. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines. That's a mistress. You can imagine the jokes I got from ninth graders. <laughs> Math problems and time, how often does he get to know one? <laughs> As a result of this, of, of, and a lot of these foreign wives, like the result of having foreign wives, a lot of this is empires making deals with one another. But in doing so, you also, and by you, I mean Solomon. <laughs> Solomon also started creating temples and altars to foreign gods. There was also sacrifice being done. When you get into study the history of Israel and Judah, you'll also know there was babies being sacrificed. I'm really into anthropology and archaeology, and from this time period, we have some pieces, and again, I wish I would have had a slide to show you this, but we have some pieces that have the name Yahweh um, right next to, and I can't remember this goddess's name, but it's like this goddess's name from, I think it's the Hittites, and they, uh, it references her as the, the spouse, the wife of God. And so you start to have this mix uh, this amalgamation of you, if you will, of this, these rules and how they were to be a priest of nations and how they were to do it a certain way. And it's, they started forgetting and new things came in and they slowly, again, they just kind of forget. And next thing you know, maybe you guys can attest to this. Next thing you know, you're just kind of going through the motions. You're standing up and sitting down and saying the words and maybe you're singing and maybe and you're just kind of going through the motions well, this happens in Jerusalem as a result of Solomon. It says the weight of the gold that Solomon received yearly, so we're talking about his business interests. This is just the money he is making on his interests, right, on his business, was 666 talents of gold. First and foremost, that's 25 tons of gold. So as a businessman, my dude is doing well. We would be tempted to assume with 25 tons of gold or three elephants worth of gold, we would assume that that was a byproduct or a fruit of his wisdom. But there's a little tell in there, isn't there? 666 talents. This is not to get any of you uh, in that, again, in that rapture, like that stuff. That has nothing to do with that. That's not... Again, come to the after talk and we can explore that. But um, for the Jews who understand their language is an alphanumeric language, there is a way to speak and use numbers. It's not some crazy Bible code, I'm not saying like that, but there's a way to use numbers to imply certain things. 
Six is the number of man. Seven is the number of God. Six is the number of man. To do it three times, it's really, really human. It's really, really not of God. So before we get excited and be like, dang, Solomon, I want to be like you. No. His business did not flourish because of his wisdom. His business flourished because of his greed. It was not blessed by God. But I don't think that God is a puppet master. And so when he asked for wisdom, he got wisdom. And he used it for good in some places. Ecclesiastes is attributed to him. There's some great deep wisdom there, right? From a life lived. <laughs> I think the thing that, um, I mean, it all breaks my heart but I think the thing that just breaks my heart the most, and it's back to that remember, it's back to that forgetting. After, after living this way for long enough in Israel, it's easy to, to, to forget where you came from. It's easy to forget the stories. It's easy to forget, like when you're celebrating Passover, this is just another story now. It's just an elf on the shelf. But what breaks my heart is that in their forgetting that this temple that they're building with all its innate gold and silver. By the way, another thing in the text, uh, it says that um, Solomon made silver as, as common as stone in Israel. There's just gold and silver everywhere. They're, so they're thriving, right? And now they're making this temple. And how's the temple supposed to be um, decorated? If you guys, oh, I hope you know this, on the inside, the innermost inner space of, of the temple, it's decorated with a garden. Why? To get us all the way back to the original blessing, to invoke this is what it's about. This is what the participation looks like. And instead, while they're making this, this temple, I have to believe it became another building project that people stood up and asked for money for. <laughs> they used slave labor. The text says that he used uh, usage? <laughs> that he used uh, servants, indentured servants. This is slave labor. Well, guess what the Israelites learned, but they forgot. God is the God who answers the cry of the oppressed. And I have to believe, but this is me making God in my image, but I have to believe that there's some sort of like double frustration there. <laughs> but again, that's me pulling God into my world. But he allows it to happen. And if you guys know the story of Israel, it's not long after Solomon that there's some split, there's some division, and eventually Babylon is going to come in. Nebuchadnezzar is going to come in. And if you want to play empire, empire is going to happen. And I think that the, we don't need the Bible to know this historical narrative Empires never last. Empires never last. They come and go. They all think that they were created by their God. They all think that their God is endorsing them to blow up everybody else and their gods. And then another more powerful empire with their God shows up, and that empire is gone after 300, 400, 500. It's the way of empire. God gave it to them in the beginning, the system of shalom. Moses tried to give it to him in the beginning. Choose life, choose death. That's the whole point. He's like, here's these two paths you can choose. 
And we choose this. Well, Babylon comes, and it's in Babylon that the Israelites will suddenly get their memory back. It's in Babylon that they will remember some of their prophets, and it's in Babylon that we will get some new prophets. It's in Babylon that they recognize that that is the curse of us playing empire. They're slaves again. <laughs> they find themselves as slaves again. And it's here, as they consider everything that they've lost, they consider their history, it's here that they start thinking again and they remember their story. From Psalm 137, we're told, by the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. How many of you heard the song in your head? By the rivers of Babylon, where we sat down. I'm not going to sing anymore for you all because I shouldn't do that. <laughs> I did ask uh, Andrew with, uh, I think, 17 hours notice if he'd be willing to do that song for us, but <laughs> was it? <laughs> It was also at this time in exile that the prophets began to have visions of a day when all would have hearts to love God. It was here in exile in Babylon that they started reimagining a new marriage. Here's a little excerpt I'd like to read from you guys from Jesus Wants to Save Christians. The prophets began to reimagine grace. They started, they started to see what it would look like for Israel's debt of unfaithfulness to be paid. And what they saw was a reconciling grace. Sorry, I just made the font larger for myself. What they found was a reconciling grace so big, so universal, that it could bind all human beings into a brand new way for the divine and the human to relate. But the prophets didn't stop there. If Sinai was supposed to have been a sort of marriage and that marriage didn't work out, then there would need to be some sort of new marriage between the divine and the human. A new marriage which would actually be a remarriage because the first one fell so far, sh far short of what God had in mind. I love that. Sorry, I didn't put that quote up there for you. Go read the book. <laughs> My thoughts on that. This new marriage would go beyond the boundaries of one tribe and include all of creation. In fact, the rest of the Old Testament is about the anticipation of that day and of the arrival of the bridegroom. This new marriage would expand to all through the gift of the Christ, which all things were made by. Isaiah, one of the prophets, put it this way. For your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. He is called the God of all the earth. The Lord will call you back as if you were a wife deserted and distressed in spirit.
the next one or put us the video? I got a quick spoken word for you guys. Uh, this is called I Do, uh, and it is about that covenant. So let's enjoy this for a moment. Hopefully. My undying bride. I've memorized the night of our covenant, the day of our betrothal. You walked down the aisle, full of faith, null of blame. You even fell to your face as you approached the altar, faltering not but altering your approach, not wanting to encroach too quickly upon the beauty of our matrimony. The, the ceremony felt so natural. The presiding night skies officiated the proceedings. The assembly was dressed finely as the shores and shone as distant suns. I wrote my vows on the numberless stars and countless sands, placing on hands a token of flesh, our rings of a certain size, our offering. The twilight minister opened his mouth. Do you solemnly swear to be one, a people and a father, a breath and a life, a keeper and a follower, a husband and a wife? Through toils and strife and unseen infidelities to lands of fornication, distant nations of adultery, do you solemnly swear to follow each other there? We declare, I do. O bride of the garden, I made a promise to be your God and make you my goddess. You ask in your shame, will he love me the same, though I've been untrue? Will he give me his name? I will, and I do. You turn to me. Our consummation consumed a nation's army in its depth. Our honeymoon stepped through death to life on dry ground. Our pledge plodded into the promised land. We prodded prodigal man's riches into our clutches. Our love was a prodigy none could understand, but... It began prompting trials through the judges. Our love became a chronic chronicle of packing and unpacking luggage. When you endured pain's touches and the way was obscured, my strength allured you. But when your borders were secured and your wealth was assured, you were lured away from me into idolatry. Lusting after kings, undressing for gold, bearing your chest, opening your legs for a foreign guest. I witnessed it all. You sprawled out for other gods, other lovers, other frauds, running from bed to bed, land to land, man to man, God to God, snare to snare. You ask me, do you dare follow me there? I declare, I do. Oh, bride of the garden, I made a promise to be your God and make you my goddess. You ask in your shame, will he love me the same? Though I've been untrue, will he give me his name? I will, and I do. You return to me. We turn to building our dream home, roamed from Bethel. Headstones turned to corners and pillows to a temple. Our abode was restful, yet we began to wrestle. I guess that's why I call you Israel, for our love is a struggle. You smuggled other lovers into our humble home, dressing them up in my clothes. I'm pacified. It was all too real, but you both faked it. You're gratified, selling yourself to the highest bidder, classifieds. I long for intimacy, but you were already satisfied. You ratified your dressed-up harlots, calling them praise and worship, religious equipment, dogmatic enlistment, naming them worthy of my name's employment. You ran after creeds and security, doctrines and rigidity, rigidly quoting your prayers. You ask me, do you dare follow me there? I declare, I do. 
oh bride of the garden, I made a promise to be your God and make you my goddess. You ask in your shame, will he love me the same though I've been untrue? Will he give me his name? I will and I do. You return to me. I poured my blessings equally across your blessed curves and deformed torso. I took you home, leveling hills and valleys so none were more so. Morsels I gave you as morals, just right. Never too little or more than enough, but my portions were never enough. You forced out equality for four-course blessings, building fraudulently endorsed armories. You outsourced charity for horse-drawn chariots. You traded the poor, trained for war, strained for glory, abstained my adoring, pouring yourself into riches, ignoring your rewarding as my heir. You asked me, do you dare follow me there? I declare, I do. O bride of the garden, I made a promise to be your God and make you my goddess. You asked in your shame, will he love me the same? Though I've been untrue, will he give me his name? I will, and I do. Thank you. for you guys. I know what it does for me. Oop. The reason I share that with you is I think it's a fantastic summary, not only of the history of the relationship with Israel, but also a summary of so much of what the prophets in the Old Testament reminded Israel. In fact, Amos is another song I asked <laughs> if we could do eventually. Amos talks about, the prophet Amos talks about from God on behalf of God. I'm tired of your worship. I'm tired of the sound that you make. That smell of the burnt offerings, they don't even, they're not pleasant to me anymore. Your hands are covered in blood. You're participating in empire. I can hear the cry of the oppressed while you're singing your songs to me. The prophet Hosea is asked to marry a prostitute to show the people of what it's like to be God married to Israel. I think David Bowden, the, the spoken word artist, uh, portrayed that well for us, right? As that sits there with you, I'm going to read another quote here from Jesus Wants to Save Christians. Jeremiah insisted that the new marriage will be totally different. God will put the truth in their minds and write it on their hearts. No more fear, no more terror, no more thunder. That was the old way, the former thing. The first covenant that was all a part of the first marriage that didn't last. But in the new exodus, the one in which everything will be different than it was before, the truth will be so deeply etched into people's consciousness that they will naturally do the right thing. A new exodus people remarried to God, leaving exile and heading home.
sorry guys, my mic's got a little messed up after the video thing. So the rest of this series, it won't just be me up here, the rest of the series will be exploring all the ways that we've moved east of Eden. How we've moved east of Eden in our relationship with nature, with each other, with ourselves, and with God. I'm looking forward to hearing from the other members of the teaching team as we collectively share in the anticipation of the prophets who anticipated a day that we'd have hearts that could truly love God and love each other. I want to share a dream with you guys that I had uh, the other day in preparation for this series. Um, but I have to ask first, have any of you guys seen the movie, uh, what was it, World War Z? We talked about it at breakfast. Have you guys seen World War Z? Or maybe you've just seen pictures or movies of like, it's usually zombies, like a horde of zombies. And there's just like, I want to use words like horde and throng and right, like just these massive amounts of zombies moving fast. And they're like going over walls and going and have you guys, you can all imagine that. I was imagining what it would look like for people to be so enlightened, shining so radiantly with the love and light of Christ. What would that look like? And again, I've already told you I'm an idealist. But in this dream, I saw something so incredibly beautiful and so absurd that I have to share it with you. I was imagining Gaza I was imagining this crap that's going on in Israel. And I imagined in a huge throng of people. I couldn't even tell what they looked like because the light was so bright. And they're all running into the battlefield, trying their hardest to find somebody with a weapon. And they're rushing right to that person and just holding them and telling them that they're loved and reminding them that they have the Christ in them. until the darkness falls off and they're reminded. This is what it means to be New Exodus people, to be a nation of priests, to know that we have that light that we don't hide on, on, on a lampstand. We put it up on a hill so that all can see, and we rush into these places where the darkness seems to be winning. This is the hope that I hope you guys walk away from, from this series, that you recognize yourselves as New Exodus people that you recognize the Christ is in you and in all. And I got off script. <laughs> so we have the original blessing of Shalom that we just scratched the surface of two weeks ago. We have the understanding that the text provides to us that the Christ is the blueprint for all and we have a choice of which narrative we can follow. So, like Moses said to his people, as recorded in Deuteronomy, this one is the message version, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today. I place before you life and death blessing and curse, kingdom and empire. Choose life so that you and your children will live and love God, your God, listening obediently to him. 
firmly embracing him. Oh, yes, he is life itself, a long life settled on the soil that God, your God, promised to give your ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is before their vision got even bigger. That included all of us. So this was Moses' appeal to remember the story, to remember their betrothal, to be a nation of priests, to bring about shalom. Yeah. So I'm excited to hear from the rest of the teaching team as they explore new ways to choose life, to choose shalom, to be new Exodus people and to teach us how to do so. Amen? Amen. Thank you for sitting. Thank you for sitting uh, somewhat patiently. God bless you all. Let's pray really quick. Creator God, let it be so. May we come to see the Christ in us. May we see the Christ in all, in the rock, in the tree, in my offspring, in my enemies. We need it, God. Amen.